Well, good morning. Yeah, Bob had to tell you I was from the United States because you wouldn't be able to tell from my accent otherwise. Yeah, so I get Canada a lot. So, Well, good morning, everybody. Um, does anybody here not like a good story? All right, well, I don't know if I have a good story for you this morning, but I do have a story. And so what I'd like you to do this morning is just try to imagine yourself in this story that I'm going to tell. Um, so if it helps you to close your eyes, you're welcome to do that. I'm not going to do anything weird to you while your eyes are closed. Um, and just try to sort of put yourself in as a participant or as an observer in this story. So let's imagine that a new pastor has come to town here in Leeds and he's attracted quite a crowd to his church because of his rather radical approach to reaching out to the poor and disenfranchised here in town. And as a result, he's being looked at somewhat suspiciously by some of the other religious leaders in town. Um, they see him kind of cutting in on their territory, their attendance numbers are dropping, they're feeling a bit threatened, they want to kind of check out what's going on here. And so they decide to sort of check him out publicly and see what he's teaching, um, see what they can do about this problem, as it were, that's arising. So the mo local Muslim imam and the Buddhist priest and the Catholic priest and the C of E vicar and a couple of local pastors invite this pastor to a public banquet, to a dinner, to quiz him and put him in his place a little bit perhaps. So he shows up after a long, hard day out on the streets at work ministering to people, and it's a, it's a muddy, wet day, and he, he's on his, his bicycle, and so he shows up soaking wet and muddy, just kind of smelly and, and a, a little bit rumpled looking, and they are all sitting there in this hall in their splendid religious regalia and in their robes and so on, and he is dripping muddy water on the floor off of his high-vis jacket. And they're all sitting there, and there's a lady who comes in who works the streets in Holbeck under the managed approach. And she comes over to the pastor and she gets down on her knees and she starts untying his shoes, his wet, muddy, stinking shoes. And she pulls his shoes off and she begins to dry his feet with her hair. And then she pulls out a bottle of expensive perfume that she got in a high-end shop down in city center and she starts to pour it on his feet and wipe down the perfume into his feet with her hair. Now let's press pause on our story. You can open your eyes if you want. Can we all agree that this would seem a little bit awkward for everybody in the room? Okay, can we, can we agree on that? Okay. What's going to happen here? How are people going to react? Okay, who's going to call 999 first? And what are they going to say when they do? Okay. Oh, 999, please state your emergency. 
Um, do you need police, fire, or ambulance? Um, there's a lady here, and she's crying on a guy's feet. And um, do you need mental health services? I'm not sure. I don't know. So what, what is going on here? I mean, how is our pastor friend going to react to this? How are the religious leaders going to react to this? What about all the rest of you in the room? What are you going to do about it? Are you going to do anything about it? Who's going to clean up the muddy perfume dripping off of her hair onto the floor? I mean, what is going on here? Now, as, as utterly bizarre as that and unrealistic sounding as that scenario that I've painted for you sounds, there's a story in the Bible which is very similar to this. Now, obviously, we all know that our pastor friend that I've just talked about, our imaginary pastor friend, is not Jesus. And it's not an exact parallel, but it sort of helps us track, hopefully, with a little bit of the tension and awkwardness and weirdness of this story. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, which should be up on the screen behind me as well. And let's read through this and uh, try to put ourselves once again in this story into a bit of the tension and the emotion of what's going on here. So Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. She, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the woman who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. 
And the other guests began to say amongst themselves, Who is this that even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So let's take a step back and unpack some of this to see what's going on. Because as we've seen at first reading, this is a really, really weird story. Jesus, God's Son, came to earth and lived life as a religious teacher. And he showed and he taught what God is really like. And the thinking at the time was that God either accepted you or did not accept you based on your ethnicity and how well you obeyed a very, 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 very long list of rules that people had made up and added to the moral standards that are clearly outlined in the Bible. And so the Pharisees, such as Simon in this story, were sort of these self-appointed morality police. Okay? And they looked down on and very severely judged anybody who could not maintain sort of a veneer of moral perfection. And in their minds, the best thing to do with a sinner, who was anybody, really almost anybody who wasn't them, was to shun them and avoid them and punish them at all costs. There was no mercy, there was no compassion, uh, no forgiveness. It was just, we need to get those people who aren't as perfect as I am. Okay, that was sort of the mentality. They also shunned and avoided women and saw women as very inferior and dirty. And so Jesus, on the other hand, came in with a radically different message. And he taught that God wants to be in a loving and personal relationship with us. And because he is absolutely perfect, he has every right to judge and condemn us and shun us. But he doesn't want to relate to us that way. He loves us and he doesn't relate to us in that condemning, shunning way. He loves us even though we sin, even though we don't obey all the rules. But he also loves us so much that he doesn't want to leave us there in our mess. He wants us to express our sorrow at our sins, at our shortcomings. And when we do so, he forgives us and he changes our hearts. He changes our desires and our lives. And he transforms our situations when we humbly come to him and admit that we need help and that we're messed up. So Jesus was teaching and modeling this new message of what God is like. And people were drawn to Jesus' teaching. They were drawn to him and this message of forgiveness, this message of transformation that they had never heard before. And the religious leaders of the day were suspicious. And they were threatened. He's cutting in on their territory. And and so they, they would try to trap him in his words. Or they would try to get him to do things that they didn't approve of. And so they were always out to figure a way to get him. Always unsuccessful, but they were always trying to figure a way to catch him and what he was doing. And Simon, from our story, was one of those religious leaders. So he invites Jesus to dinner. Now, when you're thinking he invites Jesus to dinner, you're probably thinking a kind of a cozy meal around the table in your semi-detached house. That's not what was going on here. Okay, This would have been a very public meal, Okay, probably in something like a large courtyard 
with the gates open so that the townspeople could walk by and look in and see the amazing, incredible generosity of the host and how rich he was. Okay, And so this would have been a very public affair. There would have been a, a low table in the middle of the, the courtyard, the room, um, where guests would be, invited guests would be reclined on pillows, probably leaning on their left elbow, eating with their right hand, with their feet extended out behind them. And there would have been some sort of seating area, area where you could sort of walk around and move around on the edges where the public could come and go. Um, and so, like all cultures, there were certain rules that you're sort of supposed to follow when you go to somebody's house for dinner, right? I mean, usually, generally, we all kind of have an idea when somebody invites us to come over to eat, you're supposed to take them a gift, bring them wine or flowers or sweets or something. You know, you go into somebody's house, they usually offer you something to drink. You want a hot drink? You want a cold drink? Can I get you something? And there's sort of this interplay that we do when, when we go to somebody's home. Okay, it was no different in, in that culture in those times. And so when you went to somebody's house, um, the, the people who were coming to dinner, uh, they were walking usually, they were wearing sandals, so their feet would, were dirty, so you would offer, you would have somebody, usually whoever the lowest ranking servant was in the house, offer to wash their feet um, so they could kind of freshen up a little bit. Um, you would uh, anoint their head with oil as a blessing to them, um, you would give them a kiss of greeting. So all of these things were just standard sort of social protocol. Simon doesn't do any of these things. It was just stunningly rude, okay? Which really points to his ulterior motive that he's not there to really enjoy a lovely meal with Jesus. He's there to try to figure a way to get something on Jesus, to, to get some ammunition against Jesus to catch him out in a false show of hospitality. So Jesus is there at the table, and a woman comes in who is a sinner, okay? presumably a, a prostitute. We don't completely know for sure. The text doesn't really spell it out, but presumably a prostitute who is well-known and thoroughly despised in the community. And it seems that she had heard Jesus' teaching and that it had profoundly touched her heart. She was convicted that her lifestyle was wrong, and she was repentant. She was grieved over what she had done and the way she had been living. Perhaps she had heard Jesus speak of forgiveness, and she realized that despite everything, that somehow God wasn't done with her yet. He hadn't given up on her after all, and, and she resolved in her heart that she believed Jesus' message. And that if she came to him as a, as a repentant sinner, as somebody who was really grieved over what she had done and wanting to change, that Jesus wouldn't hurt her. He wouldn't send her away. He wouldn't do damage to her like all the other men in her life had. And, and, and she believed this. And she wants to do something over-the-top extravagant to show her love and her gratitude for him and for the new start that she's receiving. So she just she takes this crazy leap of faith and grabs the, the most expensive thing probably that she has in her home, this expensive jar of perfume, and she goes to the house of one of the men in town who was most likely to hurt her, 
to harm her, to humiliate her, to scorn her, to meet the one man whom she believed would not do any of those things, who would love her and accept her and transform her life. And so she comes into the house. That's probably a little bit of an awkward moment as people are, what's she doing here? Just in the very beginning, as she's walking in, everybody would have known who she was, it sounds like. And she comes up and, and she stands, she sees Jesus, and she stands behind him over his, his feet, which are stretched toward the, the edge of the room. And as she's standing there over Jesus' feet, she's, she's just overcome with emotion. And she begins to weep. And as she's sobbing and weeping, her tears start falling down into the dust and the grime and the camel dung up under Jesus' toenails. And it's just turning it into this muddy, sloppy mess. And then she gets down on her knees and she lets down her hair, which was known as the glory of a woman at the time. And she starts wiping this slimy, stinking mess off of Jesus' feet. And she's continuing to weep and wiping his feet. And, and then she starts kissing his feet. And she takes this tremendously valuable perfume and pours it over Jesus' feet. And the smell of this sweet perfume just fills the courtyard as she pours herself out to Jesus. Now I imagine that everything else in the room has ground to a halt at this point. And everybody is watching. And everybody is wondering what is about to happen. And who is going to do what first? Astoundingly awkward moment. Interestingly, Jesus lets her continue. He doesn't short-circuit her very public and very physical proclamation of faith in Christ. He lets it happen. And in so doing, he honors her. And he honors her extravagant expression of love and faith for Christ. Now Simon, <laughs> Simon is watching this with what probably started out as horrified fascination, which then transitioned to a smug, self-satisfied thought that he had Jesus right where he wanted him. The religious leaders of the day would never let a woman touch them. They would certainly never ever let a woman of her reputation touch them. And if this Jesus fellow really were a prophet, he would know all about this woman. Everybody knows all about this woman. And he would never ever let himself be in this situation. No way. 
He had the ammunition to take Jesus down once and for all. And he knew it. But here's the really cool thing. Because Jesus is a prophet, he did know everything about this woman. More than anybody else. And he still loved her and accepted her. He knew everything about her past, everything she had ever done, and he showed her compassion. Because he knew that despite her unsavory past, despite, despite her soiled reputation, that she was truly sorry for what she'd done. And that she was ready to turn away from her life and to completely and unreservedly follow Jesus. To the point of publicly humiliating herself on the floor. And then and now, no matter how far you have fallen, no matter what you have done, no matter how horrible your sins, no matter how broken the circumstances of your life have made you, Jesus still sees you as valued and as important and not just salvageable, but renewable to the image of God that He made you to be. You see, ultimately what's going to define you and me isn't our ethnicity, it's not our country of birth, it's not your educational level, it's not your class, it's not your status, it's not your gender, it's not how good you've been at following all the rules or your reputation. It's about whether you and I are truly sorry for what we've done that's not honoring to God. And realizing that we can't fix ourselves. And that Jesus is the only one who can do that. And so we run to Him and ask Him to forgive us and change us. And then we let Him do just exactly that. Your job and my job is just to love Jesus so much that you don't care who sees it. That's your job. And that's it. And because Jesus is a prophet, he not only knows everything about the woman who's at the floor at his feet, he also knows everything about Simon. And he knows everything that's going on in Simon's heart as well. So he tells a parable, a story, to illustrate what's going on in both of their hearts right now. So Jesus refers to two people who owed money to a, a moneylender who couldn't pay it back. One owes a year and a half's wages, one owes a month and a half's wages. And he just asked Simon a very simple question. If they're forgiven their debts, who would love the moneylender more? And Simon answers correctly. He says, well, the one who owed more would love him more. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. And then he contrasts Simon's empty shell of self-satisfied superiority with the extravagant self-sacrificial act of the woman who has literally poured out her love for him. And this supposedly sinful woman has acted far more graciously than Simon, who is supposedly this righteous man. 
And because she loved much her many sins, which Jesus doesn't say she didn't have many sins. She did have many sins. But they were forgiven. And because he had little love, Simon, who didn't see that he needed forgiveness, didn't receive any forgiveness. And then Jesus does an amazing thing. He turns and he speaks to the woman directly. Something that nobody else had done. Something that nobody else would do. And he tells her that her sins are forgiven. And that her faith in him had saved her. And she could go in peace knowing that she had a new start. That she had a new beginning in life. He honors her. He restores her. He empowers her in a new life and in a new start. She does not remain the same. And of all those who were at that dinner that night, only this woman is said to have left forgiven. The one who arrived trapped in her life and her pain and her past left free. And the one who thought he had it all and who was, thought he was free was shown how much he was trapped. So let me ask you a question. Ask myself a question. To whom do you relate in this story? Who do you perhaps see yourself in, in the story? Perhaps you're like Simon. You think you have it all together? Maybe you look down a little bit on those who don't. You think that there are those who are beyond hope, who don't deserve to find life and forgiveness in Jesus. Bob and I were actually just down the street a few weeks ago, talked to a lady here, and uh, she was just absolutely incensed at the moral decline of the area, the challenges of living in a multicultural community, but she was completely blind to the venom and racism and judgmentalism in her own heart, which blinded her to her own need for forgiveness and grace and love. Perhaps you see yourself in the other people in the room, on the sidelines, watching, playing it safe, going to see what's going to happen. You're near-ish Jesus, but not really completely sold out. You haven't thrown your lot in with him in a passionate, wholehearted commitment, no matter the cost or social stigma. Perhaps you're like the woman. You realize that you haven't had it all together. And you need to know that there's no one who's too far gone, too sinful, too broken to be forgiven, to be transformed, to have your life changed. All it takes is to go to Jesus in faith. He will never turn you away. So once again, to whom do you relate in the story? Then let's ask a harder question. To whom do you want to relate in this story?
And then perhaps an even more pointed question is what are you going to do about it? Well, let me shift the conversation for a moment to those of you who would already say that you know Jesus personally in the room. What does weeping at Jesus' feet look like for you? Practically. What would that look like for you? How are you expressing your love for Jesus in a passionate and risky and and self-sacrificial way? Remembering that God's grace is, is way bigger than anything we can imagine. It's limitless. And as we receive that grace, it should motivate us to serve God and others with that same limitless, sacrificial, extravagant love. Whatever we do for the least of those around us, we're doing it for God. So what are you going to do, what am I going to do, this week, this week, to express our love for God in a tangible, extravagant way. So I'm going to let you chew on that for a moment, and I want to shift the conversation a bit to those of you in the room who perhaps wouldn't yet say that you have a a close, intimate, personal relationship with Jesus. You haven't made that commitment yet. You need to know that God loves you more than you can possibly imagine. He's got a plan for you. He's not done with you yet, just like he wasn't done with the woman in our story. He's not done with your family. Your story with him is still being written. And in order to experience the fullness of all that God has for you, the fullness of relationship with him, we need to recognize that we don't have it all together. And that our actions have been wrong. And when we admit that to God and when we ask Him to forgive us, He will do just that. And if you do that, believing that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead to defeat the power of sin and death and committing your life to Him, He will change your life both here on earth and for all of eternity. And if you would like to put your faith in Christ, you can do that now. You can go from here in peace, like the woman and our story. And you can make a commitment to him now. So I'd just like, once again, I'm not going to do anything weird to anybody. I'd just like to invite you to, to close your eyes and just think for a moment on what we've talked about. Think on this story. Think on the people in this story. Allow God to speak to you, maybe in your mind for the first time. And if you're here this morning and what you've heard has touched your heart and you say, this is, this is something I need. That I need Jesus in my life. I need that forgiveness. I need that fresh start. And if you believe that Jesus died and rose again for your sins and if you're willing to commit to Him, I'm just going to pray a prayer. Just lead us in a prayer. You can pray along with me in your heart and just make that commitment to God right now. So, you can just pray along with me as I pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you love me, that you have a plan for me, that you haven't given up on me. And I admit 
that I've done things I shouldn't have, that I've sinned. And I just pray that You would forgive me for that. That You would cleanse me and give me a new start. And I commit my life fully to You. And I pray that You would fill me with Your Holy Spirit and transform me. In Jesus' name. So, Lord, I just pray for all of us that you would impress your truths deeply onto our hearts. We thank you for how you accept us unconditionally and freely. And we just give ourselves completely to you. And work in our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Jeff, thanks for sharing that word with us. The word of God changes us, doesn't it? The teaching of Jesus.